Morning, everyone. Good to be here. Um, I was with the boys at uh, Man Camp and have, have come back to preach. Um, but it has been a fantastic time and it's quite a profound thing to get uh, that many guys away, just have time to be in the Word, but also to be together and build relationships and talk about uh, uh, things, deeper things than you normally get to talk about in daily life. So I'll pray for them. I'll pray for us as we get into God's Word. Uh, let's pray together. Uh, Father, we, we do thank you so much uh, for the power and uh, love of the Christian community. Uh, we thank you so much for the power of your word and uh, we do ask for those at um, Man Camp, even this morning, be uh, encouraging them, stirring them, challenging them, uh, shaping them, uh, help them to build relationships, to share life with one another in such a way that they uh, push one another forward and uh, we ask for ourselves this morning, thank you for the great comfort of your word, please comfort us, particularly those who deeply need it. Uh, thank you for the challenges of your word that keep us aligned with Jesus and following him. Um, please challenge us as we have need and uh, just be gracious to us in speaking to us as you promised through your word this morning and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, One of the things I sometimes like doing when I'm on holidays is a jigsaw puzzle because I figure when you're doing a jigsaw puzzle you're basically saying to the universe, I have time to waste and I love it. Because when you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, it sort of feels a little bit productive because you know, you're building something, achieving something. But in another sense, like, who cares? No one cares. No responsibility. If I walk away from it, that's, that's totally fine. But you know that experience when you get towards the end of the jigsaw puzzle and you're thinking, I'm not sure there's enough pieces. And you get really close and then there's four holes and three pieces left. And so you stick them in and then you do the search. You know, you search under the coffee table, you search under the rug, you search in the box. got to be here somewhere got to be here somewhere, and it's not anywhere. Now, that's a frustrating experience when you can't find the last piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Worse, if you're working on an engine and you you find that you're missing the critical key piece that makes the engine run, because the engine won't run, or worse, or just as bad, it'll start chewing itself up from the inside if you try to run it without that piece. In my experience of Christian ministry, it's very common... For Christians to have key critical pieces of Christian thinking missing from their thinking. I'm not talking about peripheral tangential things, I'm talking about core fundamental key pieces of Christian truth. And in this passage we find three of those, three core key critical pieces of Christian truth. And if you have them missing, your Christian life will not run well for long. It'll just start to chew itself up from the inside. And in this passage, these key pieces of critical thinking, Christian thinking, they're they're wrapped in wonderful comforts. And so in the passage, you've got three wonderful comforts, but connected to those comforts are these critical pieces of Christian thought that people often don't have in place, and they bring challenges with them. And so what we're going to do this morning is look at each comfort, Look at the, the, the critical piece of thought that goes along with the comfort and then look at the challenge that, that brings. So, um, comfort, piece of thought, challenge. Comfort, piece of thought, challenge, three times. But first, the context. It's the last night of Jesus' life. He's in the upper room with his disciples. They've just finished the Passover meal. Judas has just gone out in order to betray him to the Jewish religious leaders. And now that Judas is gone, it's almost like the last human barrier has been removed. And so Jesus says in verse 31, now, right now, at once is the time for him to be glorified. And we know from previous weeks, now is the time for him to die. He even says to his disciples, I'll only be with you for a little while longer. 
and then I'm going. And where I go, you can't follow me. He's speaking about his dying and going to be with his father through death. In preparation for his departure, Jesus then gives his disciples a commandment, the command to love one another as he has loved them. Now, Peter's hearing all this and uh, he asks the question they're all thinking, Lord, where are you going? Now, I don't think Peter asks it because he has absolutely no idea where Jesus is going. I think he asks it because there's a a growing, horrific realisation within him that Jesus is going towards the death that he's talked about so often. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, where where I'm going, you can't follow now. You will later, but not now. Because he's going on his own, uniquely to his death for us, and then to his Father's right hand to rule in heaven. Peter strongly objects, why can't I follow you? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, Peter, you, you won't actually. You'll disown me three times before the rooster crows. And in the next hours, perhaps hour, Jesus is arrested and the next day executed. Do, do, do you get a sense of what the disciples of Jesus must have been feeling through this time? Anxiety, concern, uncertainty, worry, distress. Jesus was um, told his closest followers a number of times that he was going to die. In fact, he said this was the very reason he had come in order to die. But it's just starting to dawn on them that the one they loved so dearly was going to leave them and they were going to be left alone. And so their hearts were deeply troubled. Into this context, Jesus speaks verse 1 of chapter 14. Look with me there. Don't let your hearts be troubled, he says. You believe in God, you believe also in me. Their hearts were troubled. So he has to say, don't let your hearts be troubled. And the word believe there is trust. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust God. Trust me as well, says Jesus. Trust me. Trust my promises to you. And then he gives them an incredible promise, which is comfort number one. We, Christians, have a home beyond this life. Have a look at verse two. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Incredible comfort. If our trust is in Jesus, then we have an eternal home beyond this life. Jesus calls it a house with many rooms. It's it's heaven he's speaking about, but it's a metaphor, a picture of heaven. Heaven's not literally going to be a house with many rooms, but a picture that conveys a vivid reality. House, home. God his Father, the Lord God Almighty, has a place prepared for them, a home with plenty of room they're not going to miss out, a place where they can be safe, a place where they can rest, a place where they can belong, a place where they can be together, and a place, most importantly, where they can be together with God their Father and with the Lord Jesus for all eternity. What an incredible comfort that Christians have. Don't you think this just changes everything? This has changed my life radically. To know I have the certainty of an eternal home beyond this life changes everything from day to day. Death is not the end. There's real solid hope. Um, Compared to most people, I imagine I go to lots of funerals. I go to funerals of Christians. I go to funerals of non-Christians. They're chalk and cheese. I go to the funeral of a believer and there is pain and there is sadness, but there is a deep hope reverberating under the surface. I go to the funeral of an unbeliever and there is pain and there is sadness and in the place where hope should have been there is a black hole. And it's distressing. It's deeply distressing. This is incredible comfort that Jesus gives to Christians. But he also wants them to know and us to know he's prepared the place for us. 
Our place in eternity has been prepared for by Jesus. Verse 2 again. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Jesus is the one who makes heaven possible. He prepares the place and takes people there. See, human religion always makes humans the centre, always makes humans the hero. It's always about us working our own way to heaven or the equivalent. Us being good enough, us being kind enough, us being generous enough, us being religious enough, us making enough sacrifices or giving enough or going to enough religious events or the great Aussie religion of, I've been a pretty good bloke and I think I've done more good than bad. But all religion is about us getting ourselves to heaven. That's not Christianity. In God's way, Jesus is the hero. He's the saviour. He's the one who has come from heaven to take us to heaven. He prepares a place, not us getting ourselves there. See, while some human beings have obviously performed before God better in this life than others, in terms of keeping God's standards, every human being is woefully lacking, has failed. We can never be good enough on our own performance to get ourselves to heaven. Never good enough, never kind enough, never religious enough. That's why Jesus has to prepare the place for us so we can be in his Father's house with him. We can't prepare it ourselves. See, Peter. Peter is one of Jesus' closest and dearest disciples. He loves Jesus. And you even see in this passage the sincerity of his heart when he says, I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. I'll be with you no matter what it takes. But when the heat turns up, He turns away and he leaves Jesus alone to die. See, even the best of them, even the best humans are human at best. We fail. But the wonderful, wonderful truth of the Bible is Jesus prepares a place in heaven for failures. Failures like me. Failures like you. Because when Jesus says he goes there to prepare a place, what he means is that he must die. It's by his death, followed by his resurrection from the dead, by which he prepares a heavenly home for his people. Because our performance in life before God is so poor, God, the Son, comes to earth as a man, fully God, fully man, and and lives the life we could not live. Performs perfectly where we could not perform perfectly in our place. Loves God perfectly, loves others perfectly, was totally sinless, lives under God's rule. In his life, he performs perfectly in our place. And then in his death, he dies for our poor performance, our failure. For our performance, we deserve to die, be cut off from God, be cut off from heaven forever. But instead of letting that happen, God comes to us. Jesus steps into our place, dies under the judgment of God that we deserve. An incredible swap takes place in the cross for those who trust Jesus' promise. Jesus' perfect performance is credited to us if we trust Jesus. And God sees us as if we were perfect and ushers us into heaven. Our terrible performance is credited to Jesus and he dies under the judgment of God that we deserve on the cross. And so he gets what he doesn't deserve, death. And we get what we don't deserve, heaven. He dies to prepare a heavenly home for us. Now, this is comfort number one. Isn't this incredible? But there's a critical piece connected to it, a critical piece that's often missing from people's thinking, and the missing piece has teeth. Verse 5, Thomas says, 
Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? He's, he, he's confused. And I think, fair enough, I would have been confused. But look at Jesus' response. And, and can I just say, these are some of the most profound words ever uttered in the history of the world. Verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These words of Jesus are profoundly shocking and profoundly wonderful. Don't don't miss it. Jesus says, I am the way. That is, I am the way to God. I am the truth. That is, I am the truth about God. I am the life. That is, I am the life that is found in God. And there is no other way. No one comes to God the Father except through me, says Jesus. And so what's the critical piece often thinking in people's thinking? Jesus is the only way to heaven. The only means of access to God. To reject reject Jesus, God's Son, is to reject God, Jesus' Father. But to accept Jesus, to trust Jesus, is to trust God. To trust that he is the way to God, the truth about God, the life that is found in God is to receive that life from God. To trust Jesus as the one who has died to prepare a heavenly home so that you can be with him forever is to receive just that, a home forever with him. Because Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus is God the Son come amongst us. Look at verse 8. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, rather it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. There's a perfect unity between the Father and Jesus, so much so that when you look at Jesus, you see God the Father. Jesus speaks with the authority of the Father. The Father is living in Jesus. Jesus is living in the Father. They are one being. To know Jesus is to know God. Do you see the missing piece? Critical piece that's, that's often missing in people's thinking. Jesus is the only way to God, the only way to heaven. See, I reckon lots of people think of um, the religions of the world like um, this. God is at the top, heaven's at the top, but there's lots of ways up. Some are pretty steep, but there's lots of ways up the mountain to God. Different religions, different pathways, different spiritualities. And the important thing is not which pathway or which spirituality you choose, as long as you get to the top. And humans obviously are sincerely seeking God and so, you know, trying to get to the top. But the reality is this, there is no way to the top. There's no path to God. Humans, because of our terrible performance, because of our failure before, utterly cut off from God, separated and alienated from God. There is nothing we can do to get ourselves back to God unless God reaches out to us. And so in His grace, God comes from the top of the mountain, steps down from heaven into our world, born as one of us, in order to take on our terrible performance and die under the judgment of God so that we can receive his perfect performance and be be ushered into heaven. The cross is the bridge across, the one path, the one way provided by God, provided by Jesus, not us. 
Because Jesus is the one true God come amongst us and his death on the cross is the only thing that can deal with our failure and prepare for heaven for us. Now the challenge here is absolutely clear, isn't it? Will I embrace Christ's exclusiveness? Do I truly, really, actually believe that Jesus is the only, only, only way to heaven? Because this changes absolutely everything. You know, you think about the implications. Devout Hindus... Devout Muslims, devout Buddhists will not get to heaven unless they repent and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. People from indigenous cultures who worship the land and worship the spirits, people who worship their ancestors, people who worship nature, the environment, will not get to heaven apart from repenting and putting their trust in Jesus. Good Aussie blokes who are really kind and really loving and really law-abiding and look after their families will not get to heaven apart from repenting and putting their trust in Jesus. Christianity is profoundly inclusive and profoundly exclusive. Profoundly inclusive in that Jesus' promise is for all people of all nations. Whoever you are, wherever you are, anyone who trusts and follows him will go to heaven. But profoundly exclusive... Only those who trust and follow Jesus will go to heaven. There is no other way. Doesn't this change the whole way you see the world? This is why we send missionaries to other parts of the country. This is why we send missionaries to other parts of the world, places where they have religion. This drives us as a church to help the people around us hear about the salvation that is found only in Jesus because it's found only in Jesus. Now, you might think, you are so arrogant How arrogant to claim that Jesus is the only way and all other religions and paths and spiritualities are false paths. Well, that's only true. Well, it's only arrogant if it's not true. Otherwise, it's profoundly loving. And this is Hurdy's very helpful illustration. You you imagine you're in a a big hall, a massive building. And for some reason, you're very uh, safety conscious. You walk around the hall, there's exits all around the hall, and you check them all. Locked. Oh, locked. All of them are locked. They're chained from the outside. There's actually only one exit that's functioning. All the rest are locked. All the rest are cut off. And then fire breaks out. Roars up the walls. Roars across the ceiling. People start screaming and running towards the exits. But the exits are locked. You scream. What do you scream? You scream. They're locked. Don't go to the other exits. They're barred. There is no other way. There's only one way out. This is the only way out. Now, is that profoundly arrogant? Or is that profoundly loving? There is only one way. God has come to us to prepare a way for heaven. It's the way to be saved. Will you embrace Christ's exclusiveness? Comfort one, we've got a home beyond this life. Comfort two, we have Jesus' power. Look at verse 12. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they do, will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Jesus says, because he's going to the Father, whoever believes in him, that's all Christians, will not only do the works Jesus has been doing, but will be doing even greater things than these. Greater things than Jesus did in his life and ministry on earth. Because Jesus goes to his Father through death, ascended, resurrected, exalted to the Father's right hand where he rules all things and pours out his Holy Spirit and we'll hear more about that next week. 
In the power of the Spirit, Christians will do greater things than Jesus did. This is a promise of Jesus' mighty power at work within us, which is an incredible comfort, isn't it, in our weakness? Verse 13. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. Here we have the the, the promise of answered prayer. The mighty power of prayer for God's people. Now this is an incredible comfort. You can imagine Jesus' disciples, he physically leaves them. They feel left on their own. But here this promise is, no, you'll have Jesus' power at work in your lives and your prayers will be mightily answered so that you're enabled to do even greater things than Jesus did. What incredible comfort in a world that is so often against us. But what's the critical piece of thinking in, in, in people's minds here? The critical missing piece is this. These promises are all about Jesus and his mission. They're not about us getting what we want to have a great life. See, many Christians, and you might have been taught this, many Christians have been taught that the greater things that we will do are miracles. Greater miracles than Jesus did. We'll perform incredible healings. We'll perform resurrections from the dead. We'll have victory over um, financial hardship. We'll have power over creation. And so as Christians, we'll be able to heal any sickness. We'll be able to deal with any um, financial difficulty and be financially prosperous. We'll have great relationships, amazing homes, happy experiences. We'll have a blessed life. Many Christians have also been taught that where Jesus says in verse 14, whatever we ask for in Jesus' name will be done for us. This means you pray for anything you want in Jesus' name. He'll give it to you. You pray for financial success. It'll be yours. You pray for healing for anything. It's guaranteed. Pray for the new car. Done. Pray for that great relationship. It'll happen. Pray for sporting success, career success. As long as you have enough faith, believing it'll be yours. And so misunderstood like this, it's possible to think of Christianity as a victorious, prosperous, successful, this life Christianity. A Jesus power for my health and wealth and prosperity type Christianity. Just ask it, claim it, believe it will be yours and it will be yours. But what do you do when it doesn't happen? What do you do when you aren't healed? When your finances don't come good? It can leave you crushed. And particularly then if your pastor comes to you and says, oh, it's your lack of faith. It's your hidden sin. That's why your prayers aren't being answered. And so we can find ourselves crushed or demanding of God that he answer prayers that he never promised to answer. But that's not what Jesus is promising here. I think the critical piece often missing in, in, in our thinking, people's thinking, is these promises are about Jesus and his mission, not about me getting what I want to have a great life. Let's look closer. See, the works that Jesus has been doing, verse 11, are not merely his miracles. They include his miracles, signs, John calls them, But they also include the teaching that goes right along is connected to the miracles. The teaching that helps you understand the miracles and reveals the glory of Jesus in those miracles. The works include Jesus' dealings with people, his other teachings. Everything Jesus does culminating in his death on the cross to reveal his glory. What are the works Jesus did? I think the works that Jesus did are all that he did to reveal his glory as God amongst us. And so when you come to verse 12, and it says, whoever believes in Jesus will do the works Jesus has been doing, it means Christians will continue to do this work of revealing Jesus' glory. 
Not revealing Jesus' glory like Jesus did. Him really revealing His glory where before it was largely hidden. But us taking the glory of Jesus that Jesus has revealed and spreading it far and wide. Spreading the message of Jesus' glory to the ends of the earth. We will do the works Jesus did, did, which is shining the light of Jesus' glory everywhere. Making Jesus known. But Graham, then why does it say we will do even greater things than these? Well, a key clear clue here is Jesus says, they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. It's because Jesus is going to the Father that we will do greater things. It's because Jesus has finished his work on the cross, dying for sinners. It's because Jesus has been resurrected and exalted, ascended to the Father's right hand and rules all things. It's because Jesus has poured out his Holy Spirit, ushering in a new age of salvation where people will see Jesus in his glory and will come to salvation by trusting him. Because of these things, we will do greater things than Jesus did. This is about the two phases of Jesus' ministry. Phase one, while Jesus was physically present on the earth, in phase one, Jesus' great mission was to fully reveal his glory, ultimately by dying on the cross to save sinners in his love. Jesus dies to reveal his glory and bring salvation, phase one. Phase two of Jesus' ministry is happening now. Jesus, ruling from heaven, by his Holy Spirit, working through his people. Particularly, getting the message of the cross out to the nations. Revealing his glory so that people might hear it and people might come to salvation. We do greater things than Jesus did in the sense that we are living out the culmination of Jesus' ministry. We are bearing the fruit of Jesus' ministry as we proclaim him to the world and people come to salvation. You think about Jesus' life on earth, not many followed him. Not many were saved because that wasn't his focus. Rather, his focus was to reveal his glory, particularly in his death to save sinners. But now Jesus has achieved that. We proclaim in the power of the Holy Spirit the glory of Jesus most clearly seen in the cross and the Spirit opens people's eyes and they come to salvation. Greater things. The fruitfulness of gospel ministry will be the experience of Jesus' followers as they shine forth the light of Jesus' glory. Now, you can get a bit of a feel for this in this fairly imperfect illustration. Imagine, someone creates a cure for cancer. Wow, massive, incredible. But that's just phase one. Phase two is getting the cure out to the people who need it. Applying the cure that has been won so that people can actually be cured from cancer. Doing the actual thing that the cure was intended to do. In this sense, the administration of the cure is greater. This is the power Jesus promises us. The greater things we'll be doing is sharing the gospel and seeing people come from death to life. From hell to heaven having their whole lives transformed, the whole way they think about the world, the whole way they live, being conformed to the image of Christ. Just over this term, in life, day life, mortal life, one-to-one, we have, we have a whole bunch of people who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is doing greater work of seeing people come to salvation, won by his death. And 
Jesus will do this work in answer to our prayers. See, I think this context pushes us to see that the things we are to be primarily praying for in Jesus' name are prayers for fruitful gospel ministry. These are the prayers that Jesus expects us to be praying, wants us to be praying, wants to answer. Notice it says in verse 13, actually, whatever you ask for in my name, which doesn't mean pray for whatever you want and then tack in Jesus' name on the end and all good, it's going to be done. Like a magic charm or something? No, no, no. To ask in someone's name is to ask two things. I think trusting that they're the one who'll do it, but I think it's also asked for things consistent with who they are. So imagine this. Imagine I walk up to you and I, and I say to you, I come to you in the name of Trev, and then I just slap you, just Will Smith you, boom, right across the face. Now, that's impossible to imagine because Trev is one of the most gentle guys I know. But, but if I say to you, I come in Trev's name and I slap you, you think, that slap was from Trev. Graham is being Trev to me totally consistent with Trev. If Graham comes in the name of Trev and slaps me, it means that Trev wanted me slapped. Do you you see, you do something in someone's name, it means you're doing exactly what they would do, exactly what they want done. And so to pray in the name of Jesus is to pray the prayers that Jesus is praying, is to pray the prayers that Jesus wants prayed, to pray the prayers that Jesus will answer. The things dear to his heart, that his glory cover the face of the earth, that the gospel go out and people be trans- transferred from hell to heaven. That Christians' lives be changed from one degree of glory to another. That we put sin to death. That we grow in our capacity and desire to love and care for each other. And so to ask for things in Jesus' name is to ask for the very things Jesus wants for us. The things that he promises. The very things that he's about. Because notice again, the end of verse 13, the result of Jesus answering these things is, so the Father may be glorified in the Son. I don't think asking God for a financial windfall so that I can retire early, so that I can kick back and just have a comfortable, lazy life, brings glory to the Father. But asking for people's salvation people's spiritual growth, people's changed lives, the advance of the gospel that Jesus might be honoured for strength to be obedient to Jesus. These are the prayers that our Heavenly Father wants to answer and bring glory to Him. And so, can I say, pray for whatever you need. Pray for whatever you want. Pray for healing for sick members of family. Pray for your daily concerns, your financial worries, for friends and family to become Christian. But pray knowing that God is the King and He does as He chooses. And he's our heavenly father, which means he does as his best for us out of love, even if we can't see it. And so pray for whatever you want, but pray like Jesus did, not, your, not my will, but yours be done. Let, let him be God. But I think the big focus here is have confidence as we continue in Jesus' work. Because the greater things are the fruitful work of Jesus' mission as we go out. And the prayers answered in Jesus' name are particularly prayers for the victory of the gospel to the glory of God. So have great confidence. But do you see the challenge for us here? The challenge for us here is, will I embrace Christ-centricness? See, the other way of thinking is very appealing because it's me-centric. I will do greater miracles that are going to make my life better. I will pray for the things I want and in Jesus' name have faith and I will get those things because they will make my life better. Me-centered Christianity, which is not Christianity. 
treating God as if he's the divine vending machine. You go up to the vending machine, you stick your money in and you press the button and the Snickers bar comes out. But if the Snickers bar doesn't come out, what are you going to do to that vending machine? You've put the money in. You've pressed the button. It owes you the Snickers bar. I prayed the prayer. I prayed it in Jesus' name. I prayed it believing that it would be done. But I haven't got the whatever it is come out. And we can treat God like that, like he owes me, like he must, because no. Or the genie in the bottle. You rub the bottle, genie pops out. God, you've got to answer my prayer because you're my genie in my bottle to do what I wish. How deeply offensive to treat the Lord of the universe like this. Christianity is rather to be Christ-centric, Christ-centred. A Christianity that is for the glory of Jesus and that recognises that the power he has given us by his Holy Spirit is for the spread of the gospel in answer to our prayer so that in our weakness, people might be saved and transformed and greater honour the Lord Jesus, all to the glory of God. If we embrace Christ-centeredness, this promise here should be a great comfort to us because our mission, Jesus' mission, will not be in vain. God will do his work, so take comfort. Comfort one. We have a home beyond this life. Comfort two, we have Jesus' power for his work. Comfort three, Christians live in a community of love, which emerges from his death and from verse 34. Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Jesus gives his disciples the command to love one another just as he has loved them and he says it's new. And you think, how is it new? Through the Old Testament they were to to love each other. But I think it's new in two senses. It's new in that it, it is the key mark of the Christian community. It is the way of the new covenant, love. But secondly, in that it's new in that they are to love in the way Jesus has loved. We now have a model. Jesus gave his all. We are to love like that, sacrificially. And the command is to love one another. So this is particularly for the Christian community, to love one another. Not that we're not to love the world outside, we are. But there is a special, central love that the Christian community is to have for each other. And Jesus says that this sacrificial love is what is going to mark us out as disciples of Jesus. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. Not a cross hanging around my neck. Not a fish sticker on the back of my car. Not a Christian t-shirt. None of which are bad. But by our love for one another. Now, I think this is an incredible comfort. Heaven is my home. For Jesus' mission, I have power now. And I'm part of a community who loves me. I'm part of a community where there is genuine care. Now, you might feel like churches, you might feel like our church has done very poorly at this for you. (laughs) You might feel like you have not been loved well by God's people. In fact, I think every one of us could point to times where we feel like we've really been let down. Now, can I just say that's the reality of life on this earth? The reality is that we are sinful people, even though saved, and so we will fail each other and hurt each other, and there'll be all sorts of pains because we're not in heaven yet. But even having said that, can I just say church is an amazing community of care and love. I, I get to see, I get to see what a lot don't. Below the surface, in and amongst us all, the sort of genuine care and concern and sacrifice that is going on. And it's profoundly beautiful. It's, it's incredibly amazing. Often when new people come to church, and particularly non-Christians come to church, one of, the, one of the things they often say is, 
I have never been treated the way people here treat me. It, it's amazing. What incredible comfort that Jesus has, has left us, though physically, he is still with us spiritually, but is also is loving us through the Christian community. We are part of a community of love. But the p- critical piece that's often missing in many people's thinking is fairly obvious, which is <laughs> it depends on us loving each other. It depends on you loving me, you loving the rest of us. It's a command, a fundamental command, not an optional extra. And the community of of God's people will not be a community of love unless we take real responsibility to love and care for each other. And so the great challenge for us is this, will I embrace Christ-likeness? Will I actually embrace loving God's people in the way that Jesus has loved us? See, we live in a society which is a a consumer society. If you work in the services sector, you would have had drilled into you. The customer is always right. The customer knows best because you know you've got to give the consumer a great experience because if you don't give them a great experience, they're just going to go and shop elsewhere, consume elsewhere. And so this, this starts to enter all our mentalities. I'm the consumer. And so the business needs to meet my needs or otherwise I'll take my business elsewhere danger is we bring it into the church and we can think church exists for me and my needs and my family it's there to provide for me and if it isn't providing for me then I'll complain or I'll leave now that's not to say don't tell us when there's things that are wrong there's things that are wrong we want we want to hear feedbacks I'm not not saying that at all but watch consumerism in your heart the church is the family of God We're called by Jesus to love one another. It's not about me getting out what I need. It's about me pouring in what others need. It's not about me seeking to receive. It's about me seeking to give. It's about me pouring out my life in love and service and looking for opportunities to care for others. Let let me just notice a cultural shift that I think makes this very hard. Um, My dad did 20 years of voluntary service in the surf club. So he loved it. But... uh, Many, many weekends he was down at the surf club um, marshalling water events for surf carnivals. Now he enjoyed it, he was with his mates, um, but it was totally voluntary, no pay, or just for the good of others, for the good of the community. Now I don't say that to say my dad was awesome, I say that to say I think lots of people just did that. Back in the day, heaps of people just voluntarily gave time to all sorts of community organisations just for the good and service and love of others. But over the last 30 years, don't you reckon volunteerism in our country is just dying? just dying. Now you still see it, don't you? You still see it in the SES, you see it in the RFS, you see it in some sporting clubs, but I don't think like it used to be. I think volunteerism is dying. Service to others is dying. I can also remember as a kid, and this will tell you how old I I am, on Saturdays at midday, everything's shut. (laughs) No shops, no businesses, and all day Sunday, nothing opened. Can you imagine life? How, how, how slow it was. No phones and no technology. Oh, it seems beautiful, can't we? Anyway. <laughs> but most Saturday Arvos, what, what would my dad do? Well, my dad and all the men of the street would go around to one of the houses and they'd build a deck. And they'd do that week after week after week until the deck was built. And then they'd go up the road and build this family a retaining wall. And then they'd go down here and they'd build whatever needed to be built. Now... There's self-interest in it, isn't there? Because you know that one day they're coming to your house and you're going to get something built. And, and you develop friendships. So you're with your mates and you sit around afterwards having a good old beer and all that sort of thing. But even so, I still think there was a sense of 
we care for one another. We care for one another's families. We help one another out. We, we serve. We love. It's just part of... And I reckon much of that has, has disintegrated in our culture. And particularly the last two years' experience of COVID lockdowns has turned people even more inward. And so people's homes have become their fortress. And people's families have become their focus. And people's uh, physical and mental health has become the greatest good. But homes are meant for sharing. And families are meant for giving for the honour and glory of God. And our greatest good is to love and care and serve God's family. See, Jesus bore the load for other people when no one bore his load. Jesus loved and gave himself when no one gave to him. Jesus comforts his disciples in their distress when he was far more deeply in distress. Jesus died so that others might live. If, if someone had these words of Jesus in their mind, by, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If someone had these words of Jesus in their mind and then they watched you for a month, would they conclude that you're a disciple of Jesus? Will I embrace Christ-likeness? What, what incredible comforts we have here. We have a heavenly home. The war about Jesus' mission on earth, we have his power and we're part of a community of love. But do you feel the associated challenges? Will I embrace Christ's exclusiveness, Christ-centeredness and Christ-likeness? Now in a moment I'm going to pray, but as the band comes up, why don't you think quietly for yourself about your answer to that? And then I'll pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much that because of Jesus we have a home in heaven, that we have Jesus' power now to be about his work and that we're part of a community of love. And we pray, please, Father, help us embrace these challenges to embrace Christ's exclusiveness, Christ's centeredness and Christ's likeness. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.